0: Tough Talk with Jodie Rowe is a podcast covering all sorts of challenging topics. So we'll cover the future of oil and gas, mining, all the renewables, hydrogen, hydro, offshore wind, solar. All of those things will be on the table. No sacred cows at all. So get ready for some Tough Talk. Welcome to Rick Wilkinson the CEO chief executive officer of Energy Quest Rick you and I uh, touched paths oh 2008 2009 when I was still at Santos and you're in charge of GLNG they were fascinating times so you're now the chief executive officer of Energy Quest which is a real trusted advisor of the gas industry so it's a pleasure to have you here today so thank you for attending Give us a bit of a background about Rick Wilkinson and your career and your role, and tell us about Rick.
1: Okay, well, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I started off in the technical side of things. My background is I was trained as a physicist, a nuclear physicist, but wound up in the oil and gas industry, and I worked uh, eight years with Schlumberger, six of those in the Middle East, uh, working in lovely places like Iran, Iraq, Egypt, Sudan, I lost into Texas for a couple of years before I came back to Australia with McKinsey and Company and got my consulting wings there. From there, I joined the Gas and Fuel, which was uh, the largest gas retailer in the southern hemisphere, and certainly in Australia at that time and probably the southern hemisphere. So it was a big gig with 1.4 million customers and uh, how important gas is to Victoria was underlined to be there. Costa Santos, where I stayed with him mm. for about 14 years. I had many roles, including Vice President Commercial and then Head of Queensland and GLNG, where we started up the GLNG project, Those coal, sin, gas to LNG projects uh, coming on in the world, which is really interesting. From there, I worked at APIA, the Petroleum Association, as their Chief Technical Officer in charge of the East Coast, and then joined Energy Quest about six years ago. Um, and have been working in those particular areas ever since.
0: So Energy quest has has been a trusted advisor, as I said, for the industry. What is it about energy Qu- Quest that made it attractive for you?
1: Firstly, it's been around about eighteen years now. Graham Bethune uh, set it up uh, in two thousand and five and he's kind of a a, a really factual person, so numbers tell the story uh, while sometimes it's easy to fall into sp- in and uh, particular mm. positions, but we, we like to think that the numbers tell the story and particularly history. And while everyone can do a great forecast, it's actually what are the facts telling us today? What are the stakes in the ground or which, around which the story needs to be built? And so that's what interested me, um, that, it's, that it has that fact-based session about it. The other thing is that it's a lot of bottom-up analysis of the reservoir. So we're not um, selling ourselves as economists or microeconomic uh, analysts. We actually look at the rocks themselves and what's the likelihood that the projects will actually be realized. And that's the foundation of what we do. So every 90 days, we publish the most widely read uh, gas and oil summary, now more and more energy into renewables. But every 90 days, every 90 days, we publish 160 pages of analysis. Every year we do 300 pages of forward forecasts and supply-demand analysis and then we track LNG shipment around the world so we're in touch with the global energy market as well.
0: Wow, that's a lot of data. So do you have a reasonable-sized team or is it just you know it so well you can just pump out 300 pages? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> well as obviously there's a lot of processes and and sources of data that we're tapping into um, much of it is there in government databases so we we're basically scraping data putting it together but we do a couple of things i think that differentiate us one is we're in this all the time we're not like a, a consulting firm which waits for the next job to come along and then go goes off and, and builds up the database we're up to our eyeballs in it all the time so that means that it's a little bit more natural when you need to take a closer look at some particular aspect. So that, that makes it very different for us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so there's been a number of different things across the industry over the last 12 months that have been, you know, more and more problematic, you know, the the price of energy, gas, coal, caps, you know, what, what's your take on the current position at the moment that the government's playing with the gas cap?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Jody, because we keep hearing, if you just read the news and take a fairly superficial view of the world, what what we're told is the war in Ukraine has caused all this, the higher gas prices, LNG prices in, in Europe and, and North Asia have driven up uh, uh, prices and demand, and we've exported all the LNG over Seized to to meet that demand, leaving Australians short and paying higher gas prices. We have to say that all of the analysis that we've done says this is not the case in Australia. The high gas prices of LNG that occurred, for example, the Platts JKM, which is the Northern Asian LNG spot price, that reached US $30 per mmbtu in November, mm-hmm. and it continued. That's three months before the actual Ukraine war broke out. So. Already, the energy market, global energy market, was grappling with how to balance supply and demand as we went through a northern cold, cold winter. Stocks were low, and so there was a real scramble there to fill in the in the gaps. So that that kind of doesn't jive with the story that the the war itself has created all of these shortages. The the second thing that is yeah. unusual is that the price increase that we saw in Australia and it was around about the winter of 2022, started up in, in April, doesn't correspond to any of the LNG export peaks. In fact, quite the opposite. Our analysis says that LNG exports, particularly from eastern Australia, were at some of the lowest levels they had been for two years. So it wasn't like the gas was being sucked out of the east coast of Australia and pushed out overseas. What we were seeing was, in fact, incredibly high demand because what happened was... The coal-fired power generators were having reliability problems. They had some planned outages, but there were some unplanned ones right. as well. So we lost about ten to twenty percent of the available capacity of the coal scene of the coal-fired power stations. And then we needed to fill that gap. And so first step is you you turn to the renewables, and you know they were doing all that they could given the, the wintry conditions that were unfolding. There's always a limit to how much hydro you can use, and then eventually. You turn to gas-fired power, which at the time was only about something like six or seven percent of the total power generated electricity market. So we increased that by fifty percent. Basically the East coast of Australia was very short of energy, of electricity. There were limited places to go for generation of that, and so the demand for gas-fired power generation, Drew up uh, drew out basically all the gas that it possibly could, including diversions of LNG uh, export gas into those markets so that um, we could meet demand. Yep. Of course this true gas price is really high, and uh, that had consequences for the rest of the gas market because now it was becoming unaffordable for industries unaffordable for residential.
0: It's an interesting point and I've seen the slide deck that we're going to share when the podcast comes out is around the power generation numbers and, you know, renewables being 40%, about 40%, then you've got coal and gas that make up the bulk of it. But gas is the lesser of the two substantially And is there more? We always talk about transition. Is that what we're talking about, being that transition source uh, fuel for power generation, that we've got to increase the amount of gas that is used?
1: Well, again, that's an interesting question because that's not what the analysis is showing. Mm -hmm. We've seen the growth of of renewables that have gone from very low numbers up to, you're you're quite right, it was about 40% in the fourth quarter. Uh, Of last year, and that includes rooftop power generation. So that's an extraordinarily high number for the east coast of uh, for the east coast of Australia. So the question: What happened is the um, renewables grew to that 40 percent. If the story that gas is necessary to back it up, you would expect gas to grow as well, but it did not. It actually declined from about 10 to 12 percent to uh, in that particular quarter, it was only 4% of the power generated. So what we're seeing is less volumes of gas, but actually more gas being used to to step in when renewables are not available. That doesn't use a lot of gas at all. What it does do is mean that when you push the button and it needs to be there, such as we saw in the winter of 2022, that's what you're paying for is the capacity. If you like, in, in lieu of a battery, we're relying on the availability of gas to drive up um, uh, the power generation capability to fit in there.
0: Do the government believe that the price cap is going to encourage that to have that availability uh, of gas?
1: Uh, no, they they uh, they can't. It, you can't possibly say that capping prices will increase availability. In fact, it, it has the opposite effect. Um, mm. I think Milton Freeman, the Nobel laureate in uh, economics, said, if you want to create a shortage in anything, just cap the price. We were at the uh, Australian, uh, speaking at the Australian Domestic Gas Outlook Conference just in Sydney, week before last. And uh, what has happened is uh, the price is capped. But now, unlike the previous conferences where everyone was worried about the price, not worried about the price, but just said, there's no gas available at that price. And the emergency cap, which is 12 months, so it's only going to December of uh, 2023. So what happens is you're getting a very limited amount of gas that is being brought to the market. We're not seeing uh, many large contracts that are being offered into the market. Um, And why would you? If you're a gas producer, you'd uh, leave the gas in the ground or slow down the production so that you um, can sell the gas when the gas cap is removed. Uh, hopefully, but we don't know for sure because what's happening is the Mandatory Code of Conduct ke- ke- kicks in next. And what it does is places a test of a, a reasonable price provision. So then the gas, while not technically capped, has to start off, satisfy a reasonable price test that the government decides what's a fair price.
0: Is that not just going to stunt growth in the industry for domestic gas production? You know that we already know one company stopped a project over a billion dollars, and wouldn't it just force you to send the gas offshore, export it?
1: Not necessarily offshore, but we're in a capital game here. What we're trying to do is is invest in the industry to keep it running. Uh, one thing that's overlooked uh, is we started this uh, podcasting about coal and gas to LNG projects just to run flat, just to maintain a constant production rate, those three projects, four, uh, if you include Arrow, spend about $3 billion each year just to stay flat. Yeah. So just think about this. Every year someone has to go off to Shell in The Hague and, and Total and the various overseas but, and say, we need the equivalent of up to $3 billion in ag- aggregate to be invested. And then you're sitting in The Hague or in Shell and you're saying, gee, why would I invest in... Uh, A place that has a a price cap uh, seems to be making it very, very difficult to invest when I can go to um, invest in oil in Brazil or Africa or uh, North Sea, where there's clearly a shortage of gas in in Europe that's very close to the market. And despite being very close to Ukraine and all those problems, their, their gas cap is nothing like ours and hasn't actually been applied.
0: Yes. Do you, do you think, though, that there there is definitely a misunderstanding of the importance of the gas industry and out there, not just, you know, from a jobs perspective, from an investment, the $3 billion, you know, that ongoing spending of money in the economy, the royalty? Is it is the general Joe public out there really understand the gas industry? I mean, that's part of the reason for doing the podcast is to get people like you online to help explain it help explain the where renewables sit as well but do you think there's an understanding out there
1: there probably isn't but then why should you worry about um these sorts of things when you're struggling to sort of get the kids off to school and all that so we just kind of yeah. make sure it fits in the the, the normal life but i I, I will say that if you're trying to move to net zero carbon and you need to do that as quickly as possible, what you've got to make sure is that your energy supply keeps up with demand. And so it, as it the mix changes, what you don't want is to be turning off uh, uh, power generation, energy generation capability before the replacement kicks in. Yeah. And so that is a fundamental truth that can't be avoided. You, you don't shouldn't wind up arguing whether gas is more important or less important than renewables. If you are going to renewables, you need to make darn sure you've got something to back you up when bad things happen, such as we saw in the winter of 2022. So I don't think that appreciation of the 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 benefit of gas being able to, if, if anything, accelerate the movement to renewables because you can build confidence that if you get too aspirational or you're, you're, you're pushing renewables too hard and you make making a mistake, you've got a backup there to step in behind you. If you don't have that backup, you don't have that capacity to meet uh, electricity demand, then you've got to be more conservative. You can't afford to move as, run as quickly as you are. I think that fundamental of the importance of gas is missing
0: yeah absolutely. With the East Coast versus the West Coast, you know there's often been conversation about putting a pipeline from the West to the East. They have reservation in the West, we don't have reservation in the East, we have a price cap. Why is it that they're separate markets? It's just the lack of investment to to make Australia's infrastructure a bit more mature, so it's all connected. is it was it a deliberate thing? Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's very much economics, um, mm. the challenges of uh, building enormous infrastructure over long distances in Australia. When I'm trying to explain the east coast of Australia gas market to European friends, I said uh, we can move physically, we can move the molecule, molecule of gas from Darwin all the way down to Hobart. It's all connected with a gas pipeline. Um, so that's the same as moving gas from London all the way to Ankara in Turkey. and." So very similar distances, but the entire eastern Australian gas market is about half the size of Switzerland's. So we have very little volume moving through very long distances, which require big capital investments, but it drives the price up. And that's the problem is that then you can't afford to move that little bit of gas across. Interestingly, though, you raise LNG, uh, raise a, a pipeline, We've done some quite detailed work on this, and by far the cheapest way to move gas from Western Australia is have an LNG import terminal in Melbourne. And so, if you do that, then you tick a lot of boxes. Firstly, what you do is you have a very good peaking capacity to meet those swings um, uh, with renewables kicking in and out. In Victoria, they they can swing from one day to the next 500 terajoules in demand, and only something like an LNG Uh, If you don't have that capacity offshore, uh, Mm. like in the Gippsland, and that's winding down over time, uh, then LNG imports and regasification is a very quick way to step in there. So to move gas from Western Australia, we've already got the LNG liquefaction plants in Western Australia. It's obvious there's lots of it. So picking up a cargo, putting on a ship and bringing it around and unloading it, when we looked at it, we estimate that a pipeline from Western Australia just across the Moomba is about six to seven billion dollars. To put a regas facility in place is well below one billion dollars. So it's six to seven times more expensive, and you're still going to need peaking capacity when the gas gets here. You're only going to have to rely on line pack and that whole system to be integrated, or you have a ship full of LNG sitting in the harbour ready for you to go.
0: Yeah. Well, it's been talked about a lot LNG import terminals. It, it, Will it happen? Is it happening? I've not heard. It has to happen. It has to.
1: Yeah, it has to happen. Our analysis says that as as much as a half of the gas demand by 2030, about 10 years, 2032, has to come from LNG import terminals because there is no other source of gas that we can bring to bear there to meet that demand. So it's um, extremely important, particularly with Victoria losing Longford Um, Those water-drive gas reservoirs uh, are fabulous in terms of being able to ramp up and ramp down, but they're on their last legs. They're months or just a few years away from end of it all, and when they come off, Exxon has no economic reason to maintain the swing capacity in the Longford plant. Now you're relying on the kipper, the high CO2 fields, um, and they have got to go through um, removal of CO2 processes they're much harder to swing. They certainly don't have anything like that capacity that uh, previously we had in Longford.
0: So so correct me if I'm wrong, Northern Territory are contributing. They're out there exploring in the Beedaloo. We've still got Marini running. We've got the Cooper Basin still running, so South Australia is contributing. We have Queensland, which... It's good CSG to LNG actually existed because domestic gas wise we would be really sure, I would suspect, but that's just my amateur view. And then we've got New South Wales and Victoria. New South Wales not doing a lot, still waiting for Narrabri. I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I'll be relaxing on a beach somewhere before before that happens. But it just seems like I think. Even when I was at Santos, I went to Narrabri and that was a hundred years ago. And then um Victoria as well. so there's a few states in the East that are contributing, and there's a couple of states that don't seem to be is 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 there do you think that that's going to change at all or is it just their preference not to develop the resources? There's a monitorium, is that right? yeah it's it's just
1: extremely hard to get anything up a uh, new gas proposals in Victoria and New South Wales. And you're quite right to summarise uh, Western Australia, Northern Territory, queensland, South Australia have all had very they've they've ticked uh, most of the boxes, good, steady regulations, uh, clear policies that people can assess and invest around, uh, and it's worked. As you said, most of these, um, states don't have a gas shortage. Who has a gas shortage? New South Wales, which has had Narrabri, which could meet demand in New South Wales probably for a decade, has been waiting for a decade to get approval and, and everything lined up to to go forward. Uh, Victoria went through completely banned um, fracking and now is uh, quite pool on the whole idea of, of of gas. So they have decided that they don't need gas to meet their energy needs. The problem is we have uh, an integrated East Coast energy market. So uh, gas and electricity flow across state borders relatively easily. But the source of that, the gas, is approved by the states. And so if a state doesn't approve uh, gas developments, such as New South Wales, they can still pull gas from other states, as New South Wales has done for most of the uh, reticulated lifetime of bringing gas into the state and there hasn't been any consequences because of that.
0: So, I mean, the consequence would be they've got to pay high transport costs, but it's not like they pay a premium for their gas outside of those transport costs, is it? It's not like they're suffering any more than a, an estate that's producing.
1: Yes, they just pay the they pay the, uh, the additional transport, which could be a couple of dollars, so yes, that's true. Um, but no, no, no actual penalty for driving them short. The the interesting thing, though, is that what we're getting now is with the government using its um, export powers, they're actually looking at, for example, the Queensland LNG projects and saying, despite the fact that you developed it in Queensland, Queensland has enough gas to supply all of its domestic gas and LNG exports. Because Victoria and New South Wales didn't allow gas to be developed. Um, you now have to not only divert that gas away from the LNG projects, and it's not just the spot carriers, they're now talking about the foundation customers as well. So mm. those base contracts which were used to make the investment uh, are now at risk of being broken. And this raises a big problem because uh, I'm speaking to some of those large energy companies who are in the gas business but are also some of the biggest investors in renewables as well. And they're scratching their heads saying, you know, we are really seeing firsthand the sovereign risk of investing in Australia with a gas. Uh, How are we sure that won't happen if we develop hydrogen export facilities? How do we know that won't happen if we're uh, using electricity to to generate something else that's going to go overseas? And so the risk premium of doing business in Australia has gone up. Um, And uh, we're in a battle. We talked about capital global capital being extremely important if you're trying to attract we're in a battle for attracting capital to a place like Australia it's got to be seen as the best place to invest because we're stable we we know how to run big projects but now you're starting to see compet- competition coming from uh, for capital from the likes of the US where they're gearing up with more oil and gas as well as renewables but also Europe and other places that are paying a premium or closer
0: gas to their supply chains. And, they've, well, the US has got people too. I mean, we we don't have no, 25, 26 million people and we don't have a huge amount of people as well. So I, it does become problematic. It'll be interesting to see how the next five, 10 years go with future developments and if there's any more major projects. But... It's a bit of it's a bit it's a real concern with the with the renewables. Is there any like there's there's hydro, there's uh, solar, there's wind. Do you see a place for hydrogen in the, in the whole mix, or is that you know I hear it's too expensive, you can't transport it. Is, is there is there a place for it? Or is it just too early days?
1: It is early days, but let's just go back through some of the renewals. The one that I'm more optimistic about now is offshore wind. Uh, I think we have relatively shallow shallow waters around Bass Strait. Um, I have visited the wind farm on the northwest corner of Tasmania, and uh, speaking to the operators there, they said they've never actually shut down a turbine because there wasn't any wind. They have shut them down when it got too strong. So it's a great resource. It's coming off the roaring 40s, and we we don't have a single wind turbine. After all the rhetoric, we don't have a single wind turbine out there, and the, it's only just in the. Uh, it's coming to a head now, and we're getting release of permitted areas and so forth, and a huge interest in there. But I think that's, that's an area that uh, probably there's some optimism in, in, in the renewable sector. With regard to hydrogen – It is notoriously difficult to work with. To to cool it, you've got to go down to 40 degrees Kelvin, and and that's 40 degrees above absolute zero. You know, I'm a physicist by training. That is just ridiculously cold place to, to work at a temperature. So I don't think that's realistic. I think what's going to happen is we will move hydrogen around as ammonia or there's the organic compounds that they're developing where Hydrogen is held in these organic compounds and then separated at the other place but not at low temperature. So I'm I'm optimistic about those technologies. But what this is doing is increasing the cost of moving energy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's relatively cheap at the moment to fill up a ship with coal or fill it up with LNG and put it around to the other, other side of the world, and it just owns, only adds a dollar or two to a gigajoule to run the ship and, and move it around. I think that the, the as we increase the cost of transporting energy, it will be a force to bring manufacturing and bring more value add back to closer to the source of energy. So the old stories of what we should have done back in the 70s and 80s of, of doing more value add, of, of taking iron ore pellets to the next stage and using our cheap energy and the locality of it, I think that will get another run because the cost of moving energy is going up so dramatically.
0: And you're a nuclear physicist. So I have to ask about nuclear. <laughs> what what do you reckon there? It's gonna happen? <laughs>
1: do you think my qualification might find some of this so. after all? Yes, um, I think I think so. <laughs> Look, it's an extraordinary difficult political game to get over. Uh it's just uh, the whole toxic atmosphere when you talk about nuclear is just really, really difficult to overcome. So that's the reason we're not doing it. Uh, I can see there are some new technologies coming through which I find quite interesting, um, modular systems, which are basically the same nuclear reactors that you see in submarines but in a um, container, and they run on shore. you know, that, and they can be done you could put them in places like, uh, you know, Northern Territory where they're quite isolated and you don't want to run long uh, wires all across the place because the wires are unreliable, then those sorts of technologies, I think, uh, could be quite appropriate. Just reading about the the nuclear submarines, Mm -hmm. they actually have training facilities in America where they actually run onshore power generation using the similar technologies. If nothing else, then for training the people are going to operate these things. The last thing you want to be doing is training people in the middle of a boat, 100 meters underwater, offshore, um, some uh, strange uh, Asian country. So I think there's we, we may get over slowly that that barrier and, and 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 move in there. Uh, I, but I think nuclear the, the waste story is overblown. You can store it. We've got a very stable geology, and so it's a great spot to. To to store nuclear waste, unlike CO2 or uh, gaseous um, byproducts, they disperse around the atmosphere. So, if you have a big release of CO2 into the atmosphere, it affects the planet, it goes everywhere. If you have uh, nuclear waste, it's not going to destroy or add to the problems of the world, it will be somewhat isolated to. The, the containment area and the technologies for that are very good now.
0: So just just on the CO two emissions, where does gas fit? You know, I looked at some statistics of LNG plants and versus say coal. I mean, is is a gas plant for power generation way less on emissions than coal?
1: Yes, there's there's been attempts to sort of go back through the transmission system and add it all up, but ultimately, as a, a rule of thumb, it's about half. But if you think about the way, if you're worried about the level of CO2 in the atmosphere, the industry argues that, well, gas must be better because, you know, it's only half what coal is doing, and therefore we should be replacing coal plants with gas. That only works if you shut down... Coal plants early, convert them to gas, and the gas doesn't run much longer than what the coal plants were going to run. What they're worried about is that we run the coal plants until they're finished, and then we build a gas plant, which, yes, has lower um, emissions, but is adding to the overall inventory of of CO2 in the atmosphere. So, that to uh, a strict environmentalist is a big problem because What you're, you know, you're you're saying, you know, um, the water level is rising only half as fast, but ultimately I'm going to drown. So this is a, this is not a good thing, even though the water level rising has slowed down. Try and use some sort of analogy. So that's why gas is not embraced by the environmentalists, and I don't think we as an industry listen hard enough to those those news and objections. But it does come back to the point we we talked about earlier, where it's the gas's ability to be uh, provide firm capacity when it's needed. Mm-hmm. And it might only be for very short periods. The Curry Curry uh, gas plant being built in New South Wales is only expected to run for two weeks per year. It's it's a very low volume. And in fact, my view is that it probably should run off uh, zero carbon fuel, like a, make a, a net carbon zero ethanol or, or um, one of the gases and store that rather than drill the gas wells and build the pipelines to make it a, a firm gas supply. And that would work just just fine when you only need it for two weeks in a year or less.
0: It's really interesting subject. Thank you so much.